Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, in this episode, I sit down with Elizabeth Rosenberg, who is a senior fellow and the director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Uh, she works on national security, foreign policy, and uh, particularly important from our perspective, the implementation and use of sanctions as a tool of economic statecraft. Uh, we're going to talk with Liz about uh, the politics of Russia sanctions, the effects of Russia sanctions, and what we can expect uh, from current discussions uh, on Capitol Hill and between Congress and the administration about additional Russia sanctions. Um, it's a really interesting and timely topic. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. Let's get going. We're in the studio today with Elizabeth Rosenberg, a senior fellow and director of the Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Uh, Liz, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So looks like Congress is discussing more sanctions on Russia. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what the impetus for um, the new uh, proposed legislation is and what uh, impact it might have. Sure. Well, from the perspective of members of Congress, the effort they they made to put in place very broad sanctions in 2017 was it was a really successful effort. There was this almost unanimous support for a set of measures that checks the U.S. president in his conduct of foreign policy with respect to Russia, puts in place these punishments for uh, an array of Russian economic sectors and aims directly at oligarchs. And that got a lot of policymakers thinking about what else they would like to do that they didn't get in that first round. <laughs> and then also... Um, after the Helsinki summit this past summer and revelations about Russian election interference, which strikes very close to home for members of Congress who, of course, are out there campaigning so often uh, for their own seats, that this anxiety about the conduct of U.S. foreign policy and how this influences their own uh, electoral prospects at home really got motivated um, uh, uh, launched this effort in the United States to uh, think about a next set of Russia sanctions legislation. And that's what lawmakers are considering now. So how would this new round of sanctions move beyond what uh, is already in place, both on the, the legislative side and the executive side? There's several ways. And uh, one clear motivating factor for many members of Congress is um, that electoral anxiety. You know, there's Is there um, uh, misinformation and interference in uh, U.S. domestic electoral processes at the federal level and at the state level, et cetera? Now, the administration has had something to say about this issue. They um, have a new executive order that they put out um, earlier this fall, in September, actually. However, members of Congress don't feel that that went far enough or it doesn't do quite the right thing. So that's a clear area for further legislation. And because of a broad concern about uh, what's often referred to as malign Russian activities uh, destabilizing 
uh, foreign adventurism uh, and, and that sort of thing. There's an interest in going harder on financial services and energy, even defense as a sector, uh, because many uh, policymakers feel that it has worked well in the past. Now, that may be debatable, mm-hmm. but those are all areas that they're looking at for further attention. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about this question of whether sanctions, quote unquote, work. Um, I think we have this conversation around here a lot. Um, but what is it that sanctions are actually designed to do? And I think it depends, of course, which package of sanctions you're talking about. But let's take the the, the current uh, legislation that's being discussed on the Hill. What is what is the ultimate goal, and how will we know if we've achieved it? Oh, this is such an important question. And at the outset, we should just realize, you know, what success is defined as the criteria. The, everyone has different criteria. We're we're destined for utterly subjective arguments and and conclusions here. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still worth uh, looking closely at because we're talking about policies that rearrange aspects of a major global economy, the Russian economy, and significantly change the way that international banking. And investment can occur when we're, we're straining U.S. and other global actors from engaging with uh, Russian corporate actors. So we should have a good sense, eyes wide open here, of what's going on. So I, it's a good question to grapple with, even if it's really difficult to get to the bottom of. So why do we go? Why, why do policymakers adopt these sanctions? There's you're, you're totally right. There's an array of different interests here, um, and they run. Uh, there's a, the spectrum includes a concern about election interference, which we've talked about, Russian um, aggression in eastern UK, Ukraine and Crimea, um, the chemical, the Skripal chemical attacks, um, its activity, Russian activity in Syria, violation of North Korea sanctions, other human rights abuses. There's an, a broad array. So for better or for worse, at this point, when we're talking about new legislation in Congress, there are constituencies interested in all of those factors, which may muddy the objectives for the overall project. Yeah, and I think you know, from the perspective of people like us who look at the U.S.-Russia relationship, one of the troubling aspects of this is we don't know what success looks like, and so sanctions have a kind of open-ended quality to them, and there's a concern that is based on historical experience going back to the Jackson-Vanik Act, that once sanctions are put in place by Congress, even if conditions on the ground change, even if there's a fundamental shift in the nature of the bilateral relationship, if something happens you know, to move towards a peace settlement in Ukraine or whatever it is, it's going to be very hard to walk back from these sanctions. Yes, absolutely. And if that's the case, then it looks like uh, tough messaging or punishment without strategy or incentives for Russia to change policy because there's no off-ramp. Right. And, you know, I mean, you can imagine what this process looks like for Moscow, um, that whatever we do, they're going to find something to sanction us for. So we can just kind of discount the effect of sanctions. We can, we know that's going to happen regardless. So let's figure out what we want to do and do it and just leave it at that. True. It may not be an utter lost cause. And that's one of the lessons that we should take from uh, the Iran example uh, and put aside how, whatever you think of the outcome of that and the, the deal and withdrawal from the deal. But 
one thing we did see going into that uh, diplomatic process, the nuclear diplomacy, was an array of sanctions in many different areas. And nevertheless, the United States and international partners were able to come together with Iran, focus on a specific set of sanctions, and create, uh, uh, in exchange for concessions from Iran, a certain set of economic relief. Mm -hmm. So it's not impossible for the United States and international allies. It really would need to be an international effort mm -hmm. to put forward a specific objective, outline a specific plan, and try and come together around that plan. Now, we may not have the personalities and the political <laughs> administrations in place to do that, but as a methodological or legal matter, it's certainly possible. Yeah. Well, and I think you, you touched on two points there that are important in this context, one of which is the relationship between the administration and Congress um, because that kind of flexibility is much easier when it's being undertaken by the executive branch, which is more or less a unitary actor. Um, and second is the role of relationships with key U.S. allies, um, which in the Iran case was, I would argue, very important to maintaining the integrity of the sanctions over a long period of time and actually having an impact on the Iranians, but also in, in having the ability to provide relief if and when Iran did the things that the sanctions were designed to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about the, the international aspect of the of the Russia sanctions and how much uh, of what the U.S. is doing and is trying to do uh, is being coordinated with European allies, how this debate kind of looks on the other side of the Atlantic? Right. Well, there's not much coordination anymore. Mm -hmm. And that that real fork in the road between what had been a very a coordinated effort between the United States and Europe from 2014 up until, let's say, 2017. So into the beginning part of this administration, where there was still a lot of this U.S. administration, still a lot of coordination between the United States and counterparts in Europe. <clears throat> but after Congress passed CATSA, the big sweeping piece of legislation, what I have called the mother of all sanctions bills <laughs> um, in 2017, um, that's when the divide happened. And that's when many uh, international observers and companies looked at this situation and said, these are never going away. That was that kind mm -hmm. of, oh, no, moment. Right. So it's not just Russia that prices in the existence of sanctions. It's all the companies that are interested in doing business over there. It's Absolutely. all the allies. Absolutely. So not all of them have. You know, you may have noticed that in the emerging market investment community, they still think Russia is an excellent bet. However, for companies that are thinking about major capital investments and the kind of long horizon projects that they'll need to see um, throwing off revenue for decades to come, suddenly risk mm -hmm. just ticked way up at that point. Right. And now- And that's what a lot of foreign investment in Russia is. It's in infrastructure, it's in natural resources, it's in these kind of things that require big upfront investments and take a long time to pay out. Right. So there's no, there's no error here. You know, that was what these sanctions are designed to do is scare off that class of investors, which is to say you know, the theory of the case was to for U.S. sanctions architects on for Russia to try and degrade medium and long-term growth potential, but mm -hmm. not seriously disrupt the economy right. in the immediate sense, including oil flows. Right. So uh, that is no accident that that was the outcome there, but we've seen it happen. And 
Subsequently to that, to the CATSA legislation, this administration has been uh, pretty active on um, implementing some tough policies with regard to Russia. You might be forgiven for not realizing that if you were just watching President Trump's tweets or thinking about mm-hmm. his rhetoric with um, regard mm-hmm. to President Putin and the Helsinki summit. But in fact, the bureaucracy has been churning out some really tough Mm -hmm. measures that have had an effect on the Russian economy and have caused some of its growth and investment and uh, uh, inflation, other prospects to to dim Mm -hmm. uh, because as a result. Can we disentangle the effects of those sanctions on the Russian economy from the various other forces that are buffeting it right now? Do we have a good sense of what the actual economic impact of U.S. sanctions is? This is a good question because the consensus after the 2014 uh, experience when the United States and Europe put in place these tough measures was that, in fact, they were mostly symbolic and had a much uh, more limited effect than the collapse in oil prices, which for a major resource producer like Russia was tremendously significant. So it's worth looking closely at how much of Russia's dimming economic prospects are due to uh, sanctions effects versus other economic effects. But why stop there? We should also look at how much of Russia's dimmer economic prospects are due to the fact that international investors are are concerned about Russia's more aggressive political Mm -hmm. posture and its uh, pullback from nuclear arms agreements and its continued aggressive support uh, of uh, the Syrian regime and continued reports of election interference uh, in the United States. So um, it's not just sanctions amongst other economic factors, but it's also sanctions amongst a broader environment of escalating political tensions. Yeah. Well, there's a sense that Russia's a, a risky investment. There's a there's a higher degree of political risk maybe than there was five or, or 10 years ago. And sanctions are one piece of that, but they're not the only piece of it. Right. So one thing I'll often say to people who ask this question, maybe you do the same, is to say, that's a great one. We should all be studying it a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> and since the, the the implications and the economic fallout, the political fallout is so significant from these kinds of policy measures, U.S., um, uh, the Congress and the administration can put in place, we, we better be really sure about what we think will happen. Yeah. Um, you know, you, Again, I, I want to go back to the, the U.S.-European dynamic because Russia is much more exposed economically to Europe as a source of trade and investment than it is to the United States. And so when we're thinking about the impact of sanctions um, and sort of disentangling the effects of, of various factors on, on the Russian economy, how much, how important are the U.S. sanctions in having that effect vis-a-vis the the European sanctions? And to what extent is there a concern that at some point U.S. and European approaches are going to diverge, that as the U.S. is moving towards continuing tightening of sanctions, um, given all the tensions in the transatlantic relationship, maybe Europe is going to go in a different direction? Well, we're already kind of in this natural experiment right now. So the division between Europe and the United States is occurring. And uh, on sanctions and and their enforcement, there's uh, anecdotal examples of companies uh, using uh, 
uh, regulatory arbitrage or legal repositioning to try and put themselves in a country or jurisdiction where they can continue to do certain business with Russia <clears throat> and get out from under uh, or away from exposure to U.S. jurisdiction and U.S. sanctions. So mm -hmm. uh, the two sides, Europe and the United States are uh, diverging in their approach to policy. Companies are voting with their feet and moving around to take advantage of Europe holding steady while mm -hmm. the United States is pushing further and further on these sanctions. So it's true to say that Europe is uh, more connected with Russia. There's br much broader uh, and significant trade flows uh, relative to overall trade for a number of European countries with Russia. Uh, it's not as extensive in the United States. Uh, so when Europe takes actions to restrict trade and investment flow and close its capital markets to Russian corporates and entities, then it has a big effect on Russia. However, the United States as a uh, as an economy, as a market, the U.S. dollar is so powerful globally that when the United States does act on its own and does go further than Europe on sanctions, mm -hmm. it still has the power to compel a variety of international actors, not just Russian companies and, um, and government uh, agencies, but other companies and individuals the world over to hold back mm -hmm. and withdraw from Russia. And that may be over the objections of security allies and political allies in Europe and elsewhere. But the United States can still do it because of the power of the dollar, basically, and the preeminence of the United States in global correspondent banking. Mm -hmm. So this is like the, the secondary sanctions where companies that are doing things that the U.S. considers violate its sanctions can be cut off from access to the U.S. financial system or from or face penalties for doing business in the United States. Even as a primary matter, too. So because the United States will make sanctions restrictions for U.S. persons, so for U.S. companies and banks and individuals, uh, in practice, any major global company, any major global bank, even a regional firm of any great size will find itself exposed to U.S. jurisdiction because mm -hmm. they use the dollar. Right. They often employ U.S. citizens. They use U.S. technology, et cetera. So they find themselves on the wrong end of sanctions even when they are merely primary sanctions that are only mm -hmm. supposed to affect uh, people in right. in and uh, companies in in the United States. In fact, actually, um, global financial players are heeding that in just the same way, even if almost all of their operations appear to be conducted in, say, East Asia. Mm -hmm. and, and that raises an interesting sort of longer term question, which is, and you know, the the Russian talking point on this is that the more the U.S. tries to sanction Russia by threatening companies that are doing business in Russia through restricting their access to the U.S. financial system because of their reliance on the dollar. That's accelerating a shift away from that reliance on the U.S. financial system and the dollar. And what you're going to see over the longer term is the emergence of alternative payment systems, of different of transactions being settled in other currencies, of various ways of, of countries that are worried about the U.S. and the U.S 
you know, using sanctions as a tool, not only against Russia, but potentially against others, deciding that there's too much political risk from that model and moving to create something else that parallels it. I'm so interested in this issue. It's something I'm doing a lot of work on. I think it's really significant. But I don't want to scare anyone that that reality is tomorrow because it's not. Mm -hmm. And I think it's entirely possible that the dollar will be the overwhelmingly preeminent currency for maybe our whole lifetimes. That does not mean that there won't be successful ecosystems, non-dollar ecosystems that achieve scale and Mm -hmm. sufficient liquidity to manage non-dollar transactions uh, that keep themselves outside of U.S. jurisdiction. And it's not just for sanctions evasions that certain constituencies would want to get involved in these ecosystems and there could be a flourishing of these bespoke Mm -hmm. kinds of currency activities and, and, and ecosystems around the world. We're already seeing companies and governments pioneer this and the the first models look shady they won't right, succeed. They're designed to evade sanctions. <laughs> right. Uh, but but that's how PayPal started out too. And look where it is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where certain virtual currencies started out. And some of them have adopted features that make them um, much more acceptable and mainstream. And, and the evolution of this ought to be that some will succeed and scale and they may provide uh, opportunities to 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 clear dollars even outside mm-hmm. U.S. jurisdiction. That is a very concerning uh, reality we should keep an eye on going forward. The other sort of Russian, when you talk to Russians about the how they're coping with sanctions, the other talking point, I suppose, is that there are other actors, notably China, that uh, are perfectly willing to step in to fill the void uh, where the U.S. and European companies are not allowed to tread anymore. And in part, that's related to the emergence of these alternative payment mechanisms. Uh, To what extent, one, is China, both as a state actor and Chinese companies, complying with U.S. sanctions? And to what extent is China or others from East Asia or elsewhere stepping in to fill the void that's being created by U.S. and European sanctions? Well, I'm going to go with it's uneven. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's true that there are Chinese financial institutions or other firms that have stepped into the void where Western firms have had to step back. And in 2014, you, you know, you'll remember that there was this real concern uh, on the part of the United States and, and Europe that East Asia would backfill uh, for, um, uh, for the United States and Europe when those capital market restrictions came into place. Mm-hmm. There's some examples of that. For example, the Yamal LNG plan, they yeah. figured out how to make that work, and that, though that was a, um, a necessity because mm-hmm. it was already so far advanced that there was no abandoning that project at that point. And it was on terms that were not very favorable to Russia. They had to cede an equity stake in it to the Chinese, which is something that on big capital intensive energy projects, they really don't like to do. So in a way, it's a a perfect example here because we see that uh, Russia is able to call this a win. Uh, The companies involved call it a win because they're able to advance and they did find financing for it. It's possible that U.S. and European policymakers also call this a win because they just increase the cost of doing business Mm -hmm. enormously. And what do sanctions do? They never 
cause a country or a policy leader that's the target to capitulate. That is not what they do. Mm-hmm. What they do is incred- they raise the cost of doing business and create a lot of economic leverage that mm-hmm. may or may not, depending on the skillfulness or the political environment, enable the 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 sender or the the country doing the sanctioning to engage in a political process to achieve an, a political or diplomatic end. But anyway, so... Th- but I think that's an important point, though, and this gets back to the discussion we were having before about how do we know if sanctions work? Um, because you're right. If the assumption is that sanctions are going to get Russia to comply with the Minsk agreement or withdraw its forces from eastern Ukraine or stop interfering with U.S. elections, then at least so far, there's not a lot of evidence that that is in fact the case. Um, But if the goal is to shape the environment within which the U.S.-Russia relationship develops over the longer term in such a way that it places the U.S. in a more advantageous position vis-a-vis Russia, then I think you can make the argument that that it's unproven so far, but at least you can see how that would develop in time to the point where it might lead to some kind of, of political negotiation. And I think if you look at the Iran case, that was that at least is the theory, right? That the Iranian decision to engage in the negotiations that culminated in the JCPOA was the result of the Iranian government looking around, looking at the effect that the sanctions were having on the economy and deciding that it was better to try and reach some kind of accommodation rather than keep going down the path that they were on. Yeah, exactly. So this is the this is a theory of why people will keep at it and keep doing it, even if we can't ever prove what Russia would have done if the sanctions weren't in place, right? We don't know if yeah, it would have gone further. Yeah, it's a counterfactual. Right. It's impossible to prove that. But uh, But if you've come to the place politically where you say, we must do everything we can to prevent uh, escalation in a in a hot war scenario. Then anything in this realm looks like a good alternative and may be more muscular than words alone. Right. What do you think that the U.S. has learned from the use of sanctions vis-a-vis Russia? Because this is probably the most extensive use of of sanctions that the U.S. has undertaken. It's the most sort of iterated. Um, And I know that not only Russia, but China and other countries that have difficult relations with the United States are kind of looking at this um, as a potential model for what they might face at some point in the future. Um, So what do you think we've learned? What's worked? What hasn't worked? There are so many lessons that that the United States and analysts, policymakers have taken and others. Some are the lessons um, that pragmatists hope they learn and some are not. <laughs> um, I can give you, give you examples on both. But uh, I, I agree. This, this is, what I would say about the Russia program is that it's the – what really distinguishes this sanctions program for the United States and for Europe is that it's the – set of measures that have aimed at the biggest economy mm-hmm. that um, bigger than, for example, North Korea, Iran, Burma, Myanmar, Iran, yeah. uh, a variety of um, African countries, et cetera, um, Cuba. Um, and what's also really notable about these measures is the innovation in what we have come to know as sectoral sanctions, which is also pretty new for this, is new for this program. And there have been... Um, uh, spin-offs uh, in other programs subsequently, like in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
so the sectoral sanctions approach here uh, involves the United States and Europe having gone after sectors of the Russian economy and finding what I first was calling a, a half measure or a kind of um, a, a gray list instead of a black list. So you're putting pressure on certain activities of an economic actor, not the whole thing. So you're not mm -hmm. saying game over for a whole company. Right. Just one aspect of its operations. And one thing that policymakers were trying to do in going to that place, that new set of legal authorities, was to try and create economic consequences for Russian economic sectors uh, that the Kremlin would feel, mm -hmm. but not collapse the economy and not provoke or escalate um, too much, too fast to inspire the language or perception that this was an act of war. Mm -hmm. uh, because then we're in a totally different territory. Right. Then we're not only talking about Russian responses in the sort of economic realm, we're talking about lots of other potential responses too. But I mean, I think you could make the argument that we're already in that world, um, that, you know, we don't know if the role that Russia played in the 2016 elections would have happened absent all of the other things that were going on, including the sanctions. But certainly the existence of that much more confrontational relationship of which the sanctions imposed in 2014 were a piece was part of the environment within which the 2016 election happened. Yeah. So one lesson that U.S. policymakers have learned is that the kind of economic disruption that Russia sanctions uh, wrought and are capable of is appealing, partly because they're so exercised, so concerned about these political effects, you know, election effects, um, anxiety about current and future election effects uh, brought about by Russian interference that they are comfortable with. They have grown mm -hmm. comfortable with these massive economic and disruptive uh, measures. That's new for this program as well. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to put the Iranian economy in a box, but shutting down Russian broad Russian access to uh, issue sovereign debt, for example, which mm -hmm. is an idea that has um, bipartisan, bicameral support. It seems to be sort of a fait accompli mm -hmm. that uh, Congress has decided that will be part of a future sanctions measure uh, uh, put out by uh, Capitol Hill. That's a really big deal. The same thing when we saw the U.S. I mean, is there a sense of how this could, you know, if you accept the theory that the 2016 election interference was a Russian response to steps that the United States had already taken, is there some recognition on Capitol Hill that these kind of steps for example, restricting access to Russian sovereign debt can contribute to, uh, let's call them nonlinear responses on the Russian part, and that they actually have a, an escalatory dynamic that we're not entirely sure where it may lead. I think there, there is some appreciation and consideration of that. Others on Capitol Hill just want to punish and create consequences, and mm -hmm. they are mad. And this feels like the right tool that doesn't commit U.S. troops, mm -hmm. that doesn't pull in NATO and NATO allies, and uh, is more aggressive than just words and hearings. So if you get all those constituencies together, then you get legislation. So some people are um, 
are concerned about, they, they think there's a theory here that mm-hmm. if you apply this pressure and with appropriate oversight and messaging and diplomatic willingness, you may be able to achieve an asymmetric, a positive asymmetric outcome, policy mm-hmm. change in a certain area, maybe with certain concessions, et cetera. But uh, that is sophisticated diplomacy. That is something some members of Congress and mm-hmm. the thought leadership community are keen to see happen and want to support with intellectual capital and ideas. And that's not where everyone is going. Other people just want blunt force. Mm -hmm. Um, How does this fit into the relationship between the administration and Congress? Um, As you mentioned, the administration has, despite the, the tweets of the president, for the most part adopted a fairly hardline approach on policy towards Russia, but has also not been particularly receptive to Congress stepping in to tighten sanctions. So as there's this push on Capitol Hill to move towards things like uh, restricting sovereign debt, how is that affecting relations between Congress and the administration? How does the administration perceive this? Do they have a sort of alternative that they're pushing instead? Right. So... Another lesson that many people learned from the example of Russia sanctions was that this is a very fruitful arena for playing politics, playing constitutional politics Mm -hmm. between the administration and Congress. And there's much success for Congress to try and stick it to the president and make life very difficult and unpleasant for the administration. On a bipartisan basis. On a bipartisan basis. And that hasn't happened all that often in this Congress mm-hmm. under this administration. Yeah, this might be the only issue, in fact. And you know what? It's 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 there's a lot more runway on this issue. And in fact, actually, depending on how Congress shapes itself, uh, new, the new Congress shapes itself uh, in on its issues of priority and leadership, this can be an even more fruitful arena for Russia sanctions specifically, for playing politics between the Congress and the administration. Because here's an opportunity, once again, for a bipartisan group of legislators to instruct the president on how he should conduct this important area of foreign policy. And they have some really strong views that do not line up with where the president has been, though he has been in a number of different places with respect to Russia. Um, But they they plan tough oversight. That's the topic for a different podcast. That's the topic for a different (laughs) podcast. Um, But but we saw actually another um, major innovation that occurred in the CATSA legislation was that Congress enshrined in policy an ability for itself, a really tough ability for itself to check the president um, on how he could unwind sanctions. Mm -hmm. And when something gets into law in that way, it becomes boilerplate and precedent for Mm -hmm. future sanctions in other programs. That is significant, not just for this program, this Russia program, Mm -hmm. but in how Congress tries to uh, check and constrain the executive in the mm-hmm. conduct of foreign policy. That's not going away. We will mm-hmm. see more of that. So this is a, a larger uh, balance of power or uh, checks and balances is the word I was looking for. Yeah, uh, yeah. Issue. This is a th- that was a battle that Congress won, and there will be more such battles in this war. As a former administration policy person, I am very sympathetic to what the administration has been arguing uh, 
to Congress and saying, you need to back off and leave us with the flexibility and discretion to mm-hmm. be able to negotiate, for example, to use the leverage you are helping us to accrue here Mm -hmm. in order to deliver the right kind of policy outcomes. And Congress, which is... um, Oh, we say Congress is a very blunt instrument when it comes to foreign policy. It is not well... Yes, absolutely. It's not well suited to this kind of... um, You can't negotiate. Russia can't negotiate with... With Congress. (laughs) With with 535 legislators. It doesn't look so good. Uh, And there's, there's no success there for Russia in that scenario. But uh, so so when the administration had said to Congress, you must back off, I, I am sympathetic to that, but um, but simultaneously sympathetic to the perspective of members of Congress who want to ensure that there will be no, um, no giving away of the farm. Yeah, and that's the uh, maybe paradox of this administration because even though they haven't been as accommodating towards Russia, as the narrative sometimes suggests, there is this profound mistrust of especially the president's ties to Russia in various ways that Russia may have helped his campaign. Um, And that, I think, is what makes this a bipartisan issue. Because, as you said, there have not been a lot of areas where there's been bipartisan agreement in this Congress to check the uh, flexibility or the authority of the administration. Um, and so that dynamic and the the whole sort of question of of the administration's and the the president's ties to Russia sort of hangs over all of this in a way. Yeah, that's that's totally right. So this is a clear opportunity for members of Congress and anyone who wants to influence the way that they act and shape policy in Washington. This is a good opportunity for them to express that concern and to try and hem in the president from uh, potential activities that make many people very nervous about uh, U.S. engagement with Russia. So if Democrats take the House they will have an opportunity to immediately craft maximalist Russia sanctions legislation because all of the political incentives line up for them doing not something moderate and bipartisan, but something maximalist and painful for the administration. Yeah, well, and that also puts Republicans in both houses in the position of either going along with it or having to come up with a justification for not going along with it that's going to tie them more to the administration. The fallback position, should those aggressive Democrats want to legislate and not just message, is also an aggressive on Russia and painful for Mm -hmm. the administration set of measures, which will have a serious economic effect. So, and there's already a built-in bipartisan bicameral agreement on this issue. So I have every expectation that it will move forward. My anxiety here is that the House, Democrats in the House haven't governed in a while. Mm -hmm. They haven't produced a lot of uh, original sanctions legislation in a while. They're completely capable of getting there and doing that, but maybe not without a few bumps as they're (laughs) putting in place the right, hiring the right people, Mm -hmm. putting in place the right um, uh, uh, legislative council in order to help them 
uh, write that legislation. And sometimes what happens in that scenario is that you have uh, differences in definitions or in timing mm-hmm. or uh, that create a little bit of confusion in the law about what references what and when a waiver applies to one provision but not another, that kind of thing. Those are technical issues that can get worked out. But not if this is a freight train piece of legislation careening mm-hmm. towards passage and there's right. no opportunity to break it open and fix it. And right. that's what we should be watching for. All right. On that cautionary note, uh, Liz, thanks for joining us today. I'm really glad to have had the chance to chat with you. Thanks. Okay, that is it for our show today. Thank you for joining. Uh, There's a link to Liz's bio and some recent publications in the show notes. Uh, This is also a good time to let you know about uh, our new uh, Russia sanctions tracker tool, uh, which is available on the CSIS website. Uh, It tracks all sanctions uh, imposed by the U.S. against Russia since 2012. And you can check it out at russiasanctionstracker.csis.org. Um, those of you who haven't already, uh, please do subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. If you don't use iTunes, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. Keep listening and keep spreading the word. Uh, and also keep sending in your mailbag questions. We'll do another uh, mailbag segment here soon. Send your questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia. Uh, you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff, and you can follow Olya at Olya Olaker. And of course, once again, big thank you to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, and the whole CSIS external relations and ILAB teams. Thanks for listening. <laughs>